Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. We're truly glad that you're here with us today as we kick off this Christmas season. Uh, for those of us who were at the banquet last night, I, I think you join me in agreeing that that was a very nice time of food and fellowship and, and reflection as well. So I uh, just want to start today by, by thanking all the volunteers. There's there's like an army of people behind the scenes that made that all possible. And so uh, I just want to thank you for your time with that. Would you join me in thanking them for their work on that? Yeah. And I want to extend that as well to the people who showed up on Friday night and helped us to decorate the foyer and to decorate the church this week as well. Uh, especially uh, Ben, who is kind of quarterbacking a lot of those decorations. Thank you so much, Ben, and to all who were here to uh, help us enjoy this Christmas season. It is definitely a season of traditions. We all have our own traditions. Sometimes around the table last night at the banquet, we were talking about some of the different uh, events and meals and people who come to our homes at different times for different purposes during the Christmas season. It's definitely a time of traditions, from planning parties to cooking those meals to shopping and presents and, and whatever else your family may do. One tradition that I particularly enjoy is... Uh, and you might share this one as well, is, is certain movies or TV shows that you always watch each year. And, and we probably all have our favorite Christmas movies. There's the classics, like, what are they, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and, uh, of course, Elf classics that we have. You probably have your own favorite movies that you watch with your family. But, but I don't just mean those ones. You may have noticed over the past couple years, there's also a growing tradition that Hollywood is trying to cash in on this where they know that people like to come together as friends and family and do activities with one another during this season. And so they're trying to cash in and give you something to do. And they're releasing like these blockbuster movies at this time of year. It's one of the biggest seasons in Hollywood uh, for the entire year. In fact, this year, within 10 days of Christmas, so from the, like, the 15th to 25th, Hollywood is releasing 12 big titles that are part of some like blockbuster series that they have. For, for example, uh, within just a couple of days of Christmas, there's going to be the release of the Aquaman movie, which is part of the Justice League series. Uh, Bumblebee, which is part of the Transformer series. Another Spider-Man movie. There, there's another Mary Poppins movie that Disney's releasing. And, and many, many more are trying to cash in on this time of year. And what they're actually trying to do, if you notice some of those titles, or if you were to look at what's being released, quite often these movies are either remakes or sequels to other movies that you have seen in the past, things that you, beloved movies from the past. And one of the growing trends is the prequel. And a lot of these movies actually are prequels. Some of the ones I just mentioned are prequels to other movies that you've already seen. The idea being, if you love this, you're going to really love this one. We can ride the coattails of that first movie that you're familiar with, that beloved first movie that you know so well. However, the general public does not tend to be too kind to prequels. As we know, they don't um, tend to enjoy them. If you ask somebody of a prequel they know of that they enjoyed, it's hard to come up with a name. I simply need to say Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, and you know that every other prequel gets a bad name and a bad reputation because of that one alone. But the purpose of these is to go a little deeper in understanding. They, they say, you love this movie, we're going to love the one that comes before it because we're going to go deeper into character development. We're going to go deeper into the background, what happened ahead of time. And if you appreciate the main one, you're going to love this one. And at times, these movies and stories aren't all that bad, but they just don't quite live up to the familiarity of the beloved familiar one that we know. And so as we enter into this time of Advent, we're actually going to start today by first looking at that beloved, familiar story 
the birth of Jesus Christ. In this case, told in the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew chapter 1. If, if you want to open your Bibles up to Matthew 1, we're going to spend a few minutes there. You'll also find our sermon notes in the bulletin or on YouVersion uh, Bible app. Uh, or if you want to grab a pew Bible, you'll find Matthew chapter 1 on page 783. This is the familiar, beloved story as told by Matthew of the birth of Jesus Christ. But we're also going to jump into what could be considered the prequel to this story. Found in Isaiah chapter 7. And if you want to maybe stick a thumb in that part of your Bible, that would be found in the Pew Bible on page uh, 558. But Isaiah 7 can be considered kind of the prequel to the main story we're going to be walking through here today. And the things that binds these two stories together is one word. The word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so as we start this Christmas season, we're going to say that this is sort of a prequel, if you will, to the fall series that we've just finished. If you've been with us for the past few months, you know we've been going through a series called With, where we've been talking about what does it mean to have, have life with God. Well, this Advent series, we're talking about God with us. And it could be considered that prequel, because a life with God is not possible if it were not first God with us. And so starting today, and then right through until Christmas Eve, we are going to consider the significance of this word, of this name, Emmanuel. And what does it reveal about who God is? What does it reveal about the work that Jesus came to accomplish? And what does it tell us about the meaning for our lives in this season and every season that we be, will be in beyond? So it's my prayer that we'll not only have a clear understanding of this word, this name, Emmanuel, but also it'll make it, we'll come to see the difference that God makes when we have life with God because God is with us. And so as we begin this particular season, as we begin this particular message, let's do so by looking at that Christmas story. According to Matthew, you'll find, you'll find two accounts in the New Testament of this. You'll find Luke has a, has a telling of the birth of Jesus and Matthew has a telling. Both different aspects, different angles that they come at, different details that they include. And we're going to look at Matthew's today, which is shorter, but he right at the very beginning reveals one of the main things he's trying to communicate you see, as Matthew opens up in, in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, he reveals very early on his belief that the birth of Jesus is the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. When he says this, he says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, to say that this news was a shock to Joseph would be a complete understatement. Like imagine the situation where you're engaged to a person, the wedding plans are being made, the invitations have been sent out, the synagogue is booked, the wedding party is selected, the marriage preparation has already started, you're excited for the big day, and then Mary comes over and says, Joseph, sit down. We need to talk. You know that conversation doesn't end well. And then she says, I'm pregnant. Well, Joseph knows I had nothing to do with this. So you can imagine where his mind goes very quickly. And he asks for an explanation. What do you mean you're pregnant? And Mary tells the story. She tells this story that anyone would think Joseph foolish to believe. She goes, well, Joseph, as Luke records in his gospel of the story, this angel appeared and said, Mary, don't be afraid. For you have found favor with God. You are going to conceive a son. And you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be the, called the son of the most high. 
Mary says to Joseph, so I asked the angel. I said, well, how can this be since I'm still a virgin? And then the angel answered me and said, well, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. Joseph's not buying this. I don't think any of us would either, given the situation. He's not buying the story. He's not buying the whole thing. He feels betrayed. He's probably pretty angry at this whole setting. And he knows the Jewish laws. He knows that he is able and he is in his right to divorce her. And so that's what he plans to do. But as Matthew continues to tell us in chapter 1, he gives this idea that Joseph's a good man, that he's a kind man. And even though this is all going on, he still loves Mary. And so he says, you know, I'll sign the necessary papers, but I'm going to do it in a way where I can kind of keep this quiet. He doesn't want to just keep it quiet to protect her from public disgrace. But you see, the story that Mary is telling him amounts to what Joseph thinks and the rest of society is going to think is adultery. And adultery is punishable by being stoned. I don't mean like, can't, can't, like, like federal government provided marijuana stoned. I mean like, like throwing rocks at you till you're dead stoned type of punishment. But before he could follow through on this, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, and tells him, son of Joseph, or, or Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, technically, Mary and Joseph aren't married at this point. They're what's called betrothed, which is just as legally binding as marriage. But in the Jewish customs, it provides this time in preparation for marriage to get ready for what that life is going to be like. And so they spend time where they're betrothed, which is similar to the legal binding of marriage, but they're not living together. They're preparing for that time when they'll live together after that marriage ceremony. And the angel tells Joseph, he says, don't divorce her, care for her. Because she's pregnant. She needs you. And let's be honest, you are the only one who's going to understand, Joseph. But at the same time, the story the angel tells Joseph completely, perfectly confirms what Mary had just said. Which all of a sudden, Mary's story doesn't seem so crazy anymore. It's still amazing. It's still astonishing. It still doesn't make sense in some regards, but it matches her story, so it doesn't seem as crazy anymore. And at the same time, as these pieces start to fall into place, Joseph knows what this all means. He's a faithful Jewish man. He knows the scriptures. From the time he was a young boy, he would have read and memorized the messianic promises that everybody was waiting for. And as these pieces start to fall into place, he realizes Mary is to be the mother of the Messiah. Mary is to be the mother of the one who would save his people from their sins. Now, like most Jewish people of the time, they thought they knew what that meant. You see, when they talked about sins historically in the nation of Israel, they're talking about the, this waywardness that people had. When, when they would stop following God's commands, when they would stop worshiping God, when, when their faithfulness would, would turn more to other places and other nations and, and other idols and gods, and they would walk away and wander from God. That, that was the sinfulness that they, that they were focusing upon. And because of this sinfulness, it, it led to all sorts of consequences in the nation. 
where, where God kind of removed his hand of blessing from them. And, and some of the consequences of that were like, like a fractured nation. And as you read through the history of Israel, you know that, that, that Israel and, and Judah became two separate nations. And other nations around them would come in and start to control them. And at the time of, of, uh, of the writing of the book of Matthew, at the time of the birth of Jesus, Rome was controlling the whole region. This, this outside foreign oppressive nation had come in to control them. These are some of the consequences of their sins. And so when they hear this idea, he will save you from their sins, a lot of people thought, okay, well, the Messiah is going to be this political leader. He's going to be this king who will come and save us from the consequences of our sins. He's, he's going to deliver us from foreign rule. Other people believe that because of their sins that God had punished them. And so they had these sicknesses and hardships and strife in life. And so to them, this idea of Messiah meant we're going to be delivered from our social situations. We're going to be delivered from our, our physical ailments. That's what it's going to mean. Now in time, their understanding of what Jesus came to accomplish would change. In time, their understanding of saved from their sins would change. But for now, their expectation was based upon a 700-year-old prophecy spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And Matthew, who's writing to an audience who has this understanding of this, of this nationalistic Messiah, Matthew writing to them starts to connect the dots for them and draws their attention from this beloved story back to the prequel. And he says this in verse, Matthew 1, verse 22. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The prophecy being referred to here is from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 takes place in a time of incredible turmoil, where, where the nation of Judah is under threat from outside powers. You see, at this time, the, the powerful, strong, large nation of Assyria had started to gain control over the region by conquering different countries and, and different, different nations. And as they would take over one, they would tell the king, if, if you will be loyal to me, if you will pay homage to me, if you will basically be my puppet, I'll let you stay in power. If you don't, I'll kill you, remove you, I'll bring somebody in who will do what I want them to do. As Assyria kind of moved throughout and took control of this area. Now, two of the states that had already been taken over, one was Israel and the other one was Aram. And they came to Judah and said, Judah, join with us and we'll have this threefold alliance and three of us together. We can go and we can, we can get our freedom back from Assyria. But Ahaz, who was the king of Judah at the time, didn't like that idea. He was, he was fearful of, of going that direction. He said no to them. And so the kings of Israel and Aram said, well, you have to or we'll make you. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6, they said to themselves, well, let us go and invade Judah. We'll tear it apart and we'll divide it amongst for ourselves. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6. Well, this sent great fear across the whole nation of Judah. Because the Ahaz had fought these kings before and he had lost. And so the nation kind of knew where this was going to head if, if they came to attack him. And so he thought to himself, well, what am I going to do? I got this threat from the north coming down against me. What am I going to do? And maybe he had heard that ancient proverb that a lot of us are familiar with that you may have heard before that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Have you heard that proverb before? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so Ahaz decides, I know what I'll do. I'll go have a counter-alliance with Assyria. If I got these guys from the north coming down to attack me, I've got to protect myself against them. They're fearful of Assyria. I'll join with Assyria. Assyria will come and take care of them for me. Now, this is what he's trying to figure out, how he's going to form this counter-alliance. 
And it's in the middle of this decision, in the middle of this conundrum he finds himself in, God sends Isaiah to reassure Ahaz. Isaiah arrives and he reassures him and he tries to prevent him from siding with anyone. In verse 7, God says to the prophet Isaiah, he says, basically, relax. He says, it will not take place, it will not happen. And as God continues beyond verse 7, he tells him, besides, a few years from now, these nations you're fearful of, Aram and Israel, they're going to be too shattered to be a threat to anybody. And then in verse 9, he says this to him. He says, if you stand firm in your faith, or you will not stand at all. Stand firm in your faith, or you will not stand at all. God is basically saying to Ahaz at this moment, who are you going to trust? Where are you going to place your faith? Are you going to have your faith in the power of those enemies from the north who are coming down and you're just going to fold and let them take over you and rip you apart? Are you going to allow your fear, are you going to put faith in your fear so that you have fear driving you into an alliance with the enemy of everybody in Assyria? Or in the face of this great challenge, will you stand firm with me? Will you stand firmly with the God who is with you and the God of your ancestors, Ahaz? And then in verse 11, he says this to him through the prophet Isaiah. He says, let me tell you how serious I am. Ask me for a sign. He said, he's, think of some great act. Think of some incredible evidence that I could do for you, Ahaz, and I will do it to show you how serious and how committed I am to you. And in verse 12, Ahaz responds and says, I will not put the Lord to the test. Which sounds very noble. It sounds like Ahaz is, is taking this posture of respect towards God and, and obeying a command that you find in Deuteronomy 6 that says, I will not put the Lord God to the test. But that's not actually what's happening. It's not this sense of piety. It's not this sense of honor towards God. You see, behind the scenes, Ahaz has already struck an alliance with Assyria to the point where he's actually started stripping the gold out of the temple to pay the Assyrian army to come to his protection. He's already started moving in that direction. And when God says, show me a, I'll, I'll show you a sign, he can't commit to that because he's already moved in a different direction. And so God then says in verse 14, I'll give you a sign. This will be the sign. It says, the virgin will conceive, and she will give birth to a son, and call him Emmanuel. So that's the prequel. That's the prequel to the Christmas story. And if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with Christmas? Because there's a disconnect between these things. The, the events around Mary and Joseph are not only separated from Ahaz and Judah by 700 years, but the situations are completely different. You might be wondering, like, like I do, how do you reconcile this? How do you apply this promise that is used in Isaiah chapter 7 that Matthew claims and, and includes in his story in Matthew chapter 1? How do, we, how do we reconcile that? How do we apply the vastly different promises of Emmanuel, God with us, from these two stories? Well, there's three ways that theologians typically do this. And we'll quickly go through these, these three options that exist for us on how do we resolve the use of this name in this verse in Isaiah, and in the book of Matthew. But before we jump into those, I need to really briefly remind you of the setting that we're in as this is taking place in Judah in Ahaz's time. So if you think about the threats that he's facing, the, the situations that are just, just swirling around him, Ahaz is in his palace court, surrounded by officials and family and service, and they're talking about this crisis. They're talking about what are we going to do? we got a threat from here, we have a threat from here, we have a potential alliance here, a potential alliance here. 
how do we resolve this crisis? In the middle of this discussion, in walks Isaiah. And Isaiah tells him to stop. It won't happen. Stand strong in God. And here is the promise. The promise and the sign of the promise is that the virgin will give birth to a son. That is the sign of the deliverance that is given to Ahaz. But it begs the question, when he talks about this virgin, this young woman, who is he talking about? Some people believe that he's talking about Mary. Some people believe that this is a sign and a promise that is given that will not be fulfilled for another 700 years yet. And so it's messianic only in nature. Meaning, basically, that, that God was done with Ahaz. He's like, you know, the, 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 the waywardness that you've had, the sinfulness you've had, these backroom deals that you've been making. No, I'm done. I'm going to deliver your nation, but it's 700 years from now. You're on your own, buddy, if this is messianic only. But there's a challenge with this interpretation. See, it doesn't fit the context that we find in Isaiah chapter 7. Because as God was saying, I will give you a sign of the deliverance. I will give you a sign of these things that I said will not happen. And in the context of where we find this, it is, in, is the purpose of a sign of assurance while the enemy is at the gates. And so if it's a future fulfillment 700 years later, it doesn't quite fit the context we find in Isaiah 7. So maybe it's the other direction. Maybe it's not messianic at all. Maybe this is a promise that is meant for Ahaz only. And, and support for this view comes from, from the word that is translated as virgin, which is the Hebrew word hama, which means a young woman who is about to be married. Now this speaks of a, of a person who is in an exact, in a particular state, in a particular context. A young woman about to be married. And if you can imagine the setting, if it is for Ahaz only, it's the setting where Isaiah stands in the palace court and says, this woman right here, this young woman here who's about to be married, when she gets married and has a son, that son will be named Emmanuel, and that will be the sign of hope for the whole nation during this dark time. Now that fits the context of the prequel story but that also raises questions about the original story. Because if that's all that that prophecy meant, then Matthew is overstepping. Matthew is overstepping by grabbing that and pulling it up into the story of Jesus. So those first two don't quite fit and work. Well, maybe there's a third option. And the third option is the most popular and the most common one, the one I would suggest that we see happening here, is that both are true. I don't think I'm saying both are true because we're Canadian, and that's a nice, peaceful thing to do. I think they're both true because at this point we see that Emmanuel has symbolic implications for Ahaz. That Emmanuel, God is symbolically present with the nation of Judah and Ahaz at that time, but he is truly present with us in Jesus. Here's what I mean. You see, God gave a symbolic sign to Ahaz that he would deliver them from Judah, that he would deliver Judah from their enemies. And if you were to keep reading, that's exactly what happened. What exactly happened was a couple years later, this all came to pass, just as God said it would, that, that he wouldn't be taken over, that they wouldn't be a threat, and that those nations would be shattered in the years ahead. And that happened in 732, just a few years later, when Tiglath-Pilser III from Assyria came through, broke his alliance with Aram and Israel, killed their kings, and put in different leaders. And Judah was safe at the time. So there is a symbolic deliverance, this deliverance that happens and this symbolic hope that is given to them. But in Jesus Christ, we don't just have a symbolic presence of God. We don't just have a momentary hope and a momentary relief around one particular situation. You see, his birth, the birth of Jesus Christ, signaled humanity's deliverance. Humanity's deliverance from all sin. 
and brought about this genuine, eternal hope of God's presence in all times and in all seasons. And we can further see that this is the case because as Isaiah continues to talk and we jump up into Isaiah chapter 9, he describes this child in a way that can only be fulfilled through God himself. When he says in Isaiah 9 chapter 6, he says, For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so Matthew, when he grabs this prophecy and includes it in the story of Jesus, he's not overstepping. But who else but God himself could fulfill this promise? Who else but God himself can be our Wonderful Counselor? Now we see that word wonderful and the way we use it in our language is different than it's meant here. We use the word wonderful to mean that it is something that is pleasant and lovely and likable and this kind of fluffy feeling. But that's not what this word means. The word wonderful in the context here means indescribable. He is our indescribable counselor. That in Jesus Christ we have one who can counsel us, who can guide us in a way that is beyond our imagination in whom all wisdom and all knowledge of God exists. And therefore, in him, we have somebody we can talk to, someone who can listen to us, and somebody that we can follow. He is the mighty God. When we enter into the presence of strength and power, it has an impact upon us. It affects the way we feel and think about ourselves. Think about that. If you're in the presence of somebody with great uh, stature, you kind of shrink back a little bit yourself. If you're around somebody who has great strength, you feel weak. When you're in somebody who has a position, a lofty position, you feel timid. When you're around somebody who has great influence, you can feel a little insignificant about yourself. That tends to be how we respond in the presence of might and strength. How much more so when we're in the presence of God Almighty, who is the creator of all that ever existed, all that ever will exist, whose power and abilities are incomprehensible and incomparable, whose wonders and miracles just are beyond our ability to fathom. Yet in Jesus Christ, we're not told to shy away. In Jesus Christ, we're told that we have a mighty God, and a mighty God who is at work in us, for us, and through us. We have an everlasting Father. Our everlasting Father, if you think about this word Father, there's these traditional roles, responsibilities that, that fathers traditionally have to, to protect and to provide and to love their children. There are many good fathers who sit in this room with us here today. And you know that you are trying your best and that you are fulfilling these roles of protection and provision and love. But you also know that in your humanness, your ability and your consistency to follow through on that is limited. That you do fail sometimes. But in Jesus Christ, God in flesh, we have one who protects and provides and loves without end. We have one who loves and protects and provides for all eternity into limitless levels. And then he is also our Prince of Peace. When you look at your life, when we look at the world around us, it may be hard to reconcile this word, this phrase, Prince of Peace. Because we know that the world is not peaceful at times. Our lives, our homes, our works are not peaceful at times. But political and physical safety is not what Jesus has in view here. That's not what earned him the title, Prince of Peace. Jesus cares about those things. He cares about the turmoil and the conflict that exists within ourselves, within our groups, in our homes, our works, wherever that may be. He cares about those things. But his primary mission is to bring spiritual peace to us, spiritual peace that draws us into a relationship with God. That's what earned him the title Prince of Peace. 
And now throughout the next four services that we're going to have during this Advent series, we're going to pause on one of these each service and talk more specifically and practically about what does that reveal about Emmanuel? What do these four titles of who this Christ child is reveal for us in our lives in this season and in every season beyond? But for today, as we're confronted with these words, as I hope and truly hope that you are confronted with the greatness and the incredible nature of who Emmanuel is, I want to ask you the question, what will be your response to it this Christmas? What is your response when you're impacted and confronted with the greatness of who this Christ child is? There are some people who respond to that question and say, it's a nice story. Parts of it are a little hard to accept at times. And you know, I, I hear kind of every Christmas. It's a part of my Christmas season, but it's not really a part of my life, is one answer that some people will have to that question. Others might say, you know, I love that story, and, and I believe that Jesus is God with us, and, and, and I know that, I try to believe it and live it, but if I'm honest, it's pretty familiar, almost casual, and maybe it has lost its impact a little bit. Those are two options on how we can respond. But I want to suggest to you there's a third option. A third option I'd encourage us towards. And it's a third option that is actually displayed for us. So if we jump back into Matthew chapter 1, when we look at verse 25, and it's how Joseph responded to this news. It's how Joseph responded to the amazing, confusing, incredible words that the angel spoke to him. And in verse 24, it tells us how he responded. It says that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, and she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. How did Joseph respond when he was confronted with the incredible nature of who Emmanuel is? How did he respond when he came to see the reality that God was with us? He took him home, and he claimed him as his own. He took him home, and he claimed him as his own. As we enter into this Christmas season, as we celebrate the arrival of Emmanuel, whether you are hearing this story for the first time in your life or the first time this year, what would it look like for you to take Jesus home to be your own this Christmas? And how you answer that question depends upon how you see him. You see, some people see him as, as a symbolic, situational figure in their lives. This momentary hope, he's there when I need him. Jesus is a, is a man of history. He's a, he's a great teacher. He's somebody I can call out to in a time of trouble. That, that's kind of similar to, to how he was positioned as a symbolic hope in the story of Ahaz. It, it was one option amongst others as Ahaz was trying to navigate his way through crisis and navigate his way through life. He's grateful he's there when he needs him. But it's just one of the tools in his tool belt. But not only does this diminish the greatness of who God is, but if that is our view of who the Christ child is, then it also, at best, gives us momentary hope. But the message of Christmas, the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us, is so much more than that. Because Emmanuel is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That does not mean that he is a momentary place of hope. It does not mean he offers temporary strength and comfort. He doesn't bring fleeting peace. He came to make a way for us to have a life with God. 
And our life with God is predicated upon God with us, which is Emmanuel. How does he make that possible? Well, as the name Jesus means, he will save his people from their sins is the answer to the how. And how that came about happened in a moment in history, but it also had an impact that sent ripples throughout history. As we read in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world. Why did he send his son into the world? He sent his son into the world to save it through him. He came to save the world through him. And these verses summarize what Jesus came to accomplish and why we need a savior. You see, God wants to have a relationship with you forever. But this cannot happen because, well, of a problem that exists. The problem that we are sinful that we make wrong choices, that we, we have directions and motives and the consequences of this is sin. And God is perfect and does not sin and so there's this gap that exists between where we sin and God doesn't and so relationship is not possible. But the promise was that a savior would come and that when he came, that he would solve this problem, that he would stand in the gap between us and God and that he would resolve this problem of our inability to have a relationship with him. And so as we know at Christmas we celebrate his birth, but his birth is step one, what ultimately led to the cross. And as I invite the servers to come join me at the table here, the cross is what we focus upon at this communion table and the victory that it bought for us.